0: the following program is a podcast one.com production he's a world champion wrestler best-selling author actor and lead singer of fozzy now now he's rocking the podcast world marvelous this, this, this is this is talk is jericho talk is jericho starring chris jericho
1: welcome to talk is jericho i am chris jericho welcome to the show happy new year To everybody, happy 2014. What a way to ring in the new year with my guest today, Bret Hart. The best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be on the show today. Very, very excited to have him on. He's been kind of a hero of mine for years and years and years. I remember telling him back in probably the spring of 1990, I went to the gym to go uh, try and meet him. I used to go to the gym to try and meet wrestlers across the street from the Polo Park Inn, which is right beside the Winnipeg Arena. That's where I used to go all the time to uh, meet up with the wrestlers. <laughs> if I could try and uh, coerce them into talking to me. And I told him that I was going to the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp. And he's like, does that even still exist? And I was like, oh, I think so. Cause I paid my money and I'm going. And he was like, who's running it? And I said, Oh, Ed Langley. This guy, Ed Langley, was the guy who had been writing me letters. And he's like, I never heard of him. And I was like, All right. Thanks, buddy. That's a good way to, uh, <laughs> to start uh, my wrestling career with the guy whose uh, namesake, Is on the name of the school that I'm going to. doesn't even know who's running it. That even still existed. But I did go, and Brett was always one of those guys that I looked up to. Got a chance to talk to him from time to time in the dressing room over the years. I haven't spoken to him in a while. And I'm very, very excited to have him on the show today. Number one podcast on iTunes, and on Podcast One. Thank you for listening. I want to give a little shout-out to to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Thanks to Steve for hooking me up with this show, with Podcast One, and getting me going. Steve's a great guy. Just got a brand new show. I think it's called Steve Austin's Broken Skull Ranch, where only the toughest can go uh, do reality show tests and quizzes. I don't know if they're doing quizzes. But Steve always... Has ideas going on. If you haven't heard his podcast, go check it out now. It's called the Steve Austin Show, and a very good friend of mine. Thanks to Steve. New Year's has come. I had a great party at my house with some of my friends from Calgary. Speewe came down from Calgary. I got to get Speewee on the show one of these days. Ajax came as well. I love having guys' uh, names, nicknames for your friends. My nickname when I was a kid was Irvass. I don't know why. I think it's because I, I said ass a lot. Um, so they called me Irvass. Eh. Better than my other nickname, which was Steel Wool. Because I had really frizzy hair in the back of my head. And for some reason, I used to try and straighten it and crimp it. Remember a crimping iron? That was that was awesome. Crimping. So I would put hairspray on it. I had I had like... Not long hair, but I was trying to grow it out, desperately trying to grow it out. So I'd put some hairspray in it and then try and straighten it with the hairspray in it. So I was just killing this poor hair of mine, like just killing it, like crunching it. And it was like hard. Like, how bad is that? Like hard hair at the back. And then it was, over the course of the day, it would start to, um, you know, frizzify and end up looking like steel wool. So that was my nickname in high school. Steel Wool. Irvass with the steel wool. That's the type of stuff you'll never hear anywhere else. Only here on Talk is Jericho. You got a question for me. Hit me up at Talk is Jericho on the Twitter. And I will maybe answer it. I'll be answering one later on in the show today. Did you have a good Christmas? Did you get lots of good uh, presents and prizes? I got Beats headphones that I'm wearing right now. Watch the beat. Yeah, boy. It's very, uh, very cool to have my own set of headphones. Since this is the Pod of Thunder, I am the Pod of Thunder. And Rock and Roll, girl. Yeah. Kiss is going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm so excited. I, I made a, a, a pact with myself that I'm going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony at the Barclays Center on April 10th or 11th, I believe it is. I'm really excited about that. Great having Eddie Trunk on the show last week to discuss the inner workings of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Somebody that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is Billy Joel. I got Billy Joel tickets, which was cool for Christmas, by the way. And I'm really excited because I'm trying to go see as many of these heritage acts as I can because I want, you know, you don't know how long they're going to be touring for. I saw the Stones twice in 2013. Oh, 2013. We barely knew you. And I saw McCartney. I saw Sabbath which was cool. The only problem with Sabbath was on the side of the stage, they had these um, screens, video screens. And I took my son because I took him to the Stones. He had a great time. He loved the Stones. And I said, do you want to come with me to Sabbath? He's like, sure. I said, well, you know, Ozzy swears a lot. And he said, it's okay, Dad. I play Call of Duty. Duh. So I took him to Sabbath. And right off the bat, Ozzy comes on stage. You know, I want to see an effing wild crowd! This is a family show, so I'm going to say effin'. Like my cousin Todd, who has never said the F word ever in his life. He just says effing. I want to effin' see a wild crowd! And it's Ozzy, and he's doing all his Ozzy stuff. And, you know, Ash was really excited about it at first. And then, third song in, they play Under the Sun. this kind of obscure Sabbath tune. They show these really horrible images on the side of the screen like from like the late 60s early 70s these horror movies that were made before there was a rating system so it's jesus on the cross getting eaten by a giant snake it's all of this horrible stuff and let me tell you something people i'm gonna say that in paul stanley voice let me tell you something people there ain't nothing like going to a concert and watching on a screen Two naked nuns, covered in blood, making out with each other while jerking off a cross. Yeah. That's what I'm watching with my nine-year-old son. And so, we watch a few more songs, and it's super uncomfortable, and I'm like, oh, I gotta get out of here. Maybe it'll get better. It just gets worse, and I'm on the edge of my seat, just like horribly. Like, please don't let any more of these terrible images be on stage. And I finally see that they're doing Fairies Wear Boots. I look up the set list on my phone. Fairies Wear Boots, song number eight. Okay, I'm going to stay until Fairies and we're going to leave. And, of course, what happens on Fairies? They've got those naked chicks with hooks in their shoulders being spun around on a, on a chain, elevated off the ground. So I take my son. I'm like, we're out of here. I walk out, and then it's like the walk of shame as I walk out of the venue with all these people looking at me. And I'm like, I know. I know, bad father, bad father, F off. We get back to the car, and Ash goes, Dad, next time we do something, I'm choosing it because that didn't work out too well. And I'm like, you're right, son. And we've never mentioned Black Sabbath since. I am mentioning Bret Hart. He's coming up on the show. The
0: longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed?
1: it's time to get started with talk is jericho featuring brett hart on the line right now one of the greatest pro wrestlers of all time made even better by the fact that he's one of canada's biggest heroes brett hart right here from calgary alberta how you doing brett
2: i'm doing really good chris
1: no it's good I'm, I'm glad that uh we get a chance to to have a conversation man it's it's funny because we see each other from time to time, but it's usually backstage somewhere and you get a chance to talk for, you know, five, ten minutes or something like that. But to get a chance to really uh, uh, have a good conversation, I'm really excited to, to talk to you, Brett.
2: You know, when I think about, uh, like, since I've known you, you and me have always had these little snippets of conversations like we've met here and there. But we've always had some pretty interesting conversations. and uh no, I look forward to talking to you about whatever
1: whatever you want to talk about. No, yeah, it's funny because I was just looking. I mean, the last time I saw you was was uh, was briefly at the at the Montreal Comic Con, and I was just looking on your website and I see that you, you do quite a few appearances, and you're actually even doing a, a spoken word tour in the UK coming up. Do you do do you keep yourself pretty busy uh, still traveling around and appearing all over the country?
2: I still try to get out there, especially um, you know, just for me. I I spent so much of my life, uh, traveling that I don't like to be on the road too much, but at the same time, being basically retired means I got a lot of free time. And so sometimes, uh, you know, when I get a chance to, for example, go to England in a few months from now and do a little thing, it, it's, it gives me a chance to get out and have some fun again and maybe see some old friends or family that I have scattered all around the world. And just, you know, I don't, I don't do that much traveling, but I do enough that, uh, you know, especially uh, like some of the small uh, independent wrestling companies i all come out and do a, an appearance or something like that. That usually helps uh, generate some attendance so that you know, some of the young wrestlers that are working today uh, can wrestle in front of an audience. It's, so it's the only way you can learn is to wrestle in front of some people. And, uh, you know, it's harder and harder for the independent
1: Right, right. Now, for, for example, when you're talking about going to the UK with the spoken word shows, have you done anything like that before?
2: No, I'm not quite sure even what it entails.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You're telling me more about it than I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's but, funny yeah I, I've done a couple of those before and basically all you do is you just get up on stage and just, just talk just tell stories and maybe people ask you questions or whatever it may be but it's pretty much up to you it's pretty much just do whatever you want to do uh, just kind of engaging the crowd with some of the tales that you have from your years on the road
2: well I, then I have done a couple of those well you know me as well as anybody that I can ramble on about a lot of stuff i got, <laughs> I got enough of my dad in me that uh, <laughs> you know, give me
1: be an hour and I'll wear your ear off. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the funny story. I mean, it, it, it's it's it makes me laugh to this day. Just how um, how critically acclaimed and how legendary Stu Hart is, not just as you know, obviously a legendary promoter and, and and performer, but everybody can do Stu Hart imitation. Everybody can do his voice. He's one of the most most imitated guys in the wrestling business. Is is Stu Hart? Well,
2: I think uh, I can remember when I used to. School. everyone in my school can imitate my dad yeah, <laughs> so. he had one of those voices that was you know i'll say comparable to someone like john wayne where every once you could do it everybody could do it and he had a certain sort of uh i don't know a, paw, a lot of pauses in his
1: uh yeah his cadence
2: yeah there'd be a lot of ahs uh, in there and he'd uh, some take sometimes it takes you five minutes to tell you <laughs>
1: something that was uh in a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, how was that growing up with Stu Hart as your father? I mean, obviously, you're, you're one of 12 children uh, and uh, and came were basically born into the wrestling business. Your dad was the promoter for Stampede Wrestling in, in Calgary, Alberta area, and all across Canada. You you pretty much have been around wrestling from the day you were born. How was that growing up with him and with all of the cast of characters that you must have met just at a young age that were probably hanging around you uh, all the time?
2: You know, the more I look back on it and sort of reflect on it, I think that it must have been a lot of fun being my dad. You know, he got into wrestling and uh, went down to New York and sort of working for Vince McMahon's father and the wrestling promotions back then. There was a guy named month that uh, took a shine to my dad and uh, kind of mentored him after that and kind of got up, steered him into the getting into the promotion up here in uh, Alberta. And uh, he came back from... Uh, been working in the New York area for about three years, where he met my mom and dragged her up to Canada and opened up his own wrestling promotion. And, uh, you know, he always uh, always brought a certain toughness and realness to the wrestling that he had here, but he had, you know, a lot of the great characters and the champions of the 50s all came up to Calgary through his connections with Quitsmont. And
3: mm-hmm. so
2: guys like Jack Dempsey would come up here and referee for my dad and wow. Gorgeous George and Antonio Rocca would come up. And so there was a lot of big names that came up here and suddenly were appearing in Calgary and Edmonton. And and my dad, you know, funny enough, he used to fly his wrestlers around in an airplane back in the 50s. Oh, really? You know, they had a little airplane. They'd fly everybody around. It was like a great territory, and they made nothing but money in the 50s. My dad had, I don't know how many Cadillacs parked in the yard by the time I was born. <laughs> but, it, but that was uh, I was born in 1957, and it, Wrestling was really big for about six, seven years. For my daddy, I think he made a fair bit of money and paid off his house. And you know, he had by then he had about uh, you know eight kids or seven kids. And, and I know that uh, things really took a downturn in the, the mid or the late 50s, right around the time I was born. And uh, wrestling was a struggle to promote and make money from. That point on, I think for most of the years I was a kid growing up in
1: wrestling,
2: it
1: was a tough, tough business to be in as far as you know making a living from it. Right. So was it hard, kind of growing up? Like you know, you know how it is in the wrestling business. How you mentioned how the business goes in cycles. Was it hard from a financial standpoint? Like you mentioned in the fifties that you guys had the Cadillacs and everything. Were there times when you guys had nothing because the business was bad as well?
2: Oh yeah, I mean there was tough times, especially in uh, probably the mid-60s, I can remember. My dad had uh, started excavation work on that big house of his. We, he ran out of money, and he couldn't afford to finish the, the front windows on the house, These big, giant windows he was putting in. He couldn't finish the job for about at least three winters. And uh, that meant the whole house was like we lived in a tent. Wow. And th- those years, I remember being the hardest. Like, I can remember... He'd, that's why I think the hearts had so many cats. Is you have to go to bed at night with about four or five cats under <laughs> the blanket. And, and, uh, and, I mean, there was a fight at around ten o'clock at night to see you could find the cats. You know, <laughs> there was, like, I, I'm not kidding you. I mean, we'd have it was very cold. You could see your own breath in the room and stuff like that. And, you know, we went through some tough times. I remember. I mean, really, from the time I was born, just about till maybe the high school, uh, my whole life consisted of hand me downs and. Uh, the two square meals I got a day at home. You know, I got breakfast in the morning with my, my dad. Well, was, my dad did all the cooking and cleaning and driving. And my mom never had a driver's license. and We lived out in the country about 10 miles out of the city back then. Uh-huh. It was not easy for my dad. He was, you know, I can remember my, when I was a kid walking from, you know, school every day, walking home, which was, you know, Airways, every You know, when you do it all the time, especially after and practice, you get be pretty wiped by the time you got home, especially in the wintertime. Right. My dad, you know, he, he got up every morning about 6.30 in the morning and made breakfast for everybody. And he and he'd come home to clean all the breakfast, clean up the kitchen and all the, because of the, what it took to feed 12 kids. And then he would make my mom breakfast in bed. And then my mom would get up and uh, the day would start. But uh... My dad doted over my mom for most of her lifetime. but could really good care of her. Uh, oh wow! She ran the business, and ran the office, and the phone calls, and nurtured all the wrestlers, and gave the talks when they needed pep talks. Was
3: mm-hmm.
2: a bit of a marriage counselor for a lot of them, and cheered them up when they were depressed. And, you know, you don't realize how wrestlers are just like little boys sometimes, right? Their lost men on, their, on the road <laughs> to life, you know, and. Uh, Anyway, so uh, the wrestling, I think my mom and dad ended up in the wrestling. They ran a kind of a fun business, but I don't think they made much money on it. Eventually, the kids, I think my dad, uh, did manage to put together a very unique, uh, wrestling show and a wrestling, uh, experience that, uh, I don't think is, is, um, you know, I, I don't think it's attainable today. I think wrestlers They dream about wrestling territories in their heads. And the the Calgary territory is one of the fun territories that uh, nobody ever made or made much money there in working for my dad, but everybody had a lot of fun. And uh, the one thing you learned to do is you learned how to wrestle. Right. And uh, that's what I think Calgary offered. The the wrestling my dad put on uh, with Ed Whalen doing the commentary on the shows um, in Calgary at the Stampede uh, Pavilion. It was just a very unique uh, sort of a. Uh, it was it was like a grand production that uh, that uh, a lot of other territories had similar type uh, um, sort of experiences, but right. Calgary was. The, if I know you, I'm not sure. I don't know sure if you were worked for my dad. I know you were uh, worked in Calgary, and you met some of my brothers, Keith. Uh, yeah. Took some of your money and uh, thank you
1: for learning to know that he could teach you. Yeah, he he showed up one on the first day and and took our money and then he he also stretched me, put me in this hold where I thought he was going to snap my teeth out because I didn't. I think I asked him a question that he didn't like or something. You know, anybody have any questions? And I asked him like how many how many matches have you had? Well, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Didn't anybody ever make a, a record of that or something along those lines? And he got mad at me and stretched me, and then we never saw him again for the rest of the time. But the thing that was cool was that there was a a book like like a, that Stu had written, or he had written some some training, uh, you know, some training notes down, or kind of some ideas on how he would train guys or something like that. So we had we had some at least some Stu Hart esque like drills and stuff like that. But other than that, there wasn't really a lot of hearts involved in the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp. But the the thing that was cool, I was going to say the thing that was cool about Stampede Wrestling, though, uh, about what you were saying earlier, is it was a real mix of uh, American style, Japanese style, English style, Mexican style. It was kind of a hybrid of all those things uh, because of the different talent that your dad had brought in to work there.
2: Yeah, and, you know, there was a lot of guys that came up to work for my dad that, uh, you know, from a wrestling standpoint, from an American wrestling standpoint, were unusable. Like, they were Puerto Ricans that couldn't speak English. They were Japanese guys that couldn't speak English. They were right. British guys that didn't have any kind of, um, they didn't want to bring English guys into the States. Uh, so you end up a real, real interesting sort of crossbreed of different wrestlers. But also, you know, the best thing about Calgary is the age. You know, you end up with a lot of old timers, uh-huh. guys like John Foley and bad news, and a lot of old-timers, and then you end up with a lot of um, young kids that are all like eager to learn, and when you get the old-timers and the young guys together, you get this sort of chemistry of guys that learn how to take care of the old guys, and that the old guys teach the uh, young guys right. how, to, how to work without uh, hurting each other, and it's, uh, it's a real uh, passing of the porch. I think that's what I loved about Calgary, and I think that uh, people didn't recognize until after they came here how much they learned. You
1: you learned a lot. Yeah, it was like a good hockey team. You had a crop of rookies. You had the 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 middle-of-the-road guys that were kind of... You know, like you said, kind of the, the seasoned vets that could teach the younger guys. And then you had the stars. Uh, and there were a lot of guys in Calgary. Like I remember even from when I started, I never actually worked for your dad. But they, of course, the remnants, I think Stampede closed about six months before I got in the business. But when I got there, there was still guys like Johnny Smith and Great Gama. And Jerry Morrow, to me, was one of the best guys that that worked in Calgary that never really made it. I mean, he made it, but never made it in the big leagues. And I'm sure there was a lot of guys that were there like that when you were first starting out as well.
2: Yeah. Jerry Morrow maybe was the greatest seller you know he could sell better than any wrestler I ever watched like when he like kicked him you you know you'd want to cry right <laughs> he was so um, brilliant that at making the guys that he worked with and people will recognize that or or remember that today but I remember it yeah and guys like Jerry Morrow made made a million other wrestlers and everyone forgets about today but Right. There's guys like SD Jones and WWE and Rick McGraw and a lot of guys that, uh, you know, that, that lay down for a lot of guys and made a lot of guys. So Jerry Morrow was just one of those guys that, like you said, he's uh, with, uh, maybe one of the greatest of all time. came like, to actual, real wrestling, you know.
1: I, I agree. I agree and could do anything and uh the greatest backdrop too. He still to this day took such an amazing backdrop. And like you said it was good for a young guy. He taught he taught myself, you know, Lance Storm guys like that quite a lot um because he had the experience that we didn't have. Now when you were in Stampede when you first got in who who were, who were your favorite opponents that you worked with in in Stampede kind of in the early years of your career?
2: Well, I worked with uh, Dynamite Probably from the beginning, and I think I learned so much. I, I went, I, I learned in leaps and bounds after working with Dynamite. Mostly because I think I had to. You know, yeah. I had to. Uh, I had to follow in his sort of <laughs> his wake. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, Dynamite, I had some really good matches with in the beginning. I think um, once I had finished working with Dynamite for a, a sort of a length of time, I think I got a got my confidence up, and B I. Uh, My work picked up a lot. I'd learned a lot in the last couple months and started putting together better matches and more interesting uh, thoughts into the finishes and stuff like that. I think that was one of the things
3: that really maybe
2: helped me with my career was that, you know, when I used to work for my dad, there'd be like nine matches on the card, so there'd be maybe 18, 20 wrestlers in the the two bands that we would... Used for different shows. Uh-huh. Well, I would get to the building often late, you know. But anyway, we'd end up there, and uh, I would have to come up with uh, nine different endings to nine different matches, <laughs> and tell everybody what to do. And you know, you just learn. I just learned really quickly how to put together shows, how to put together the matches. You know, who wins, who loses, what. Stu wants, or, you know, you talk to my dad about what you want, what he'd want in the, in the matches and stuff. But it was, I learned a lot, uh, just, uh, suddenly being in charge, you
3: know. Uh huh.
2: You know, but I was going to say a minute ago, and one of the things that I, that I really remember about Calgary was that, um, you know, just when you think you, you couldn't be in a less, a more more miserable place, you know, like being driving to, uh, Regina in 40 below weather, how miserable you are. Yeah. It's the last stop territory you want to be in. And then you'd look over and you see someone like uh, Terry Funk or or uh, Harley Race or Dory Funk or somebody sitting in the van with you, and you realize that, you know, there's a top and bottom here. There's a funny thing about Calgary. There's a lot of a lot of the big names and the, the greats pass through Calgary. So you might just be a young upstart in Calgary, but working up in the Calgary territory, but all of a sudden you got Harley Race coming in and setting his bag down, or Luthez. Right. So we had a lot of um, icons pass through that you could uh, could actually know in your heart that you're in the big time, you know, in a a way.
1: And and Stampede was so ingratiated in the community. To this day, everybody knows, you know, Stampede Wrestling. If you live in Calgary, you know it or know of it. And it's like, it's been... A, a good 20 years since stampede even ran basically I mean there's been a couple you know small offshoots here and there but you know stampede wrestling in, in its heyday basically ended you know in 89 but still to this day it's such a part of the community in Calgary why do you think that is Brett
2: well you know how it is in Canada with uh, hockey night in Canada and Don cherry and right it becomes a institution you know, people sit down and they want they wait for Don cherry's message of the week sort of on what uh, whether it's uh, about a soldier or but a certain hockey player or a fight or certain things. And you know, in back in the when I was a kid, you know, you, you turn on the T V in the afternoon and you're probably one of the kids that did it. You know, you turn on and you wait for Stampede Wrestling to come on and Ed yeah. uh, Well and then uh, you wait for the whole show. And a lot of times it was if you went down to the shows so you try to be on the back side of the camera where you're waving <laughs> at the crowd. Yeah. I remember just wait watching the show so I could see myself at the end and go, There I am you know <laughs> but it was um It was a a lot of kids did it. A lot of people dropped their kids off at the pavilion just to get rid of them for the night. But it became kind of an institution here in Calgary, where it's like, let's go down to the wrestling. Let's go down and Ed Whalen made it fun, and uh, it was always on TV the next day. And people, people was one of the most watched shows in 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 Calgary and across Canada and even around the world. Where Stu got it. Stu got it. Funny enough, I'm wrestling in Dubai Mm
3: -hmm. back
2: in the eighties. Nobody ever heard of me. And uh, I remember I did have a press conference and for Noki's office. And all, the only guy they knew was me. And they have been watching Stampede Wrestling for years. And they'd seen my dad. And they knew that I was his kid. and
1: Really? In Dubai? And
2: I, they asked me all at the press conference. They only asked questions to me, which kind of Noki was not too. <laughs> you know, that, it was just kind of a funny thing. And I remember when I, I wrestled Tiger Mask. And he went over. And I put them over, one, two, three. Uh I kicked out on three. And I got up and made a bit of a protest that it was only a two count.
3: Uh
2: And the whole crowd went crazy, and they ended up having to reverse the decision, and they angrily put me again in a rematch with uh, Tiger Mask the next day to appease the crowd. (laughs) And I would totally heal the whole match, and they still cheered me. uh, It's a funny funny memory, but I know that that was all from uh, working... uh, you know, from people watching Stampede Wrestling, the legendary sort of Stampede Wrestling, what my dad did. It's a, what made... Von Erickson had a similar thing in Israel.
1: Yeah, I had heard that. And it's funny, we were just in Dubai uh, a couple years ago with WWE, and there was actually a Tim Hortons there. Maybe the Tim Hortons was there because of Stampede. They love Canada.
2: You know, I remember that whole <laughs> uh, that old Canada-US thing I had with WWE back in the, in the 90s. But I remember going over to Bahrain, and they had sewn together a Canadian flag that was, I don't know, about 30 feet tall.
3: Uh-huh.
2: They were holding it out in the stands. And, you know, you can't even find a Canadian flag, let alone one. They, they made it on their own and sewed it together. And I remember thinking, that's pretty cool. You know, who would think that they would make a Canadian flag all the way over here in Bahrain?
3: Uh, <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> I mean, it was a huge flag. I think I got a video of it somewhere in the crowd. But it was just like, you know, good to
1: have flags everywhere. Yeah, the the, the power of
0: TV. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So, set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
3: Talk is Jericho.
1: So, we're talking with Bret Hart here about the early days uh, of his career in Stampede Wrestling in Calgary. Uh, What led you to finally get the call to go work for for Vince in the WWF uh, back in, I believe it was, 83 or 84 and did you have any intentions of working for, uh, for for WCW or NWA at the time, or was it always WWF for you?
2: Um, you know, I was right on the, on the on the cusp of that whole thing when it just started to happen. Uh, Vincent sent up George, George Scott as his, his right hand man back then and said uh, to work out a deal where they bought out my dad's territory, which they did, but they never paid for it.
1: <laughs> really, they never paid him yeah. for it.
2: Never paid him a nickel. Oh, jeez. They, they uh, took over his TV, and he sold him the business, but he never got paid. But uh, anyway, I was part of the deal. I didn't know it was actually even part of the deal, but uh, they had said something, they were going to hire me, and some of the others, they were thinking of hiring us, and they wanted us to come down to New York. And I remember I had a specific conversation with George Scott first time I met him. I said, I, I don't really want to go down there just to be a job guy. Mm-hmm. I said, I'd rather just go to Japan. And I just didn't want to be a job guy, you know, like a squash guy. Right. And he said, no, 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 you're not going to, you'll never be that. You're going to be a top guy. You're going to work with all the top guys in the main matches, and we're going to, we've got big plans for you. And I remember at the time kind of rolling my eyes and going, yeah, you kidding me? New York City, the big time, like, it's all, back then there were the Giants of wrestling. Right. It was a big man territory and uh, they worked slow and methodical and you didn't care how good you wrestled. It didn't matter how big you were. That's how I remember New York back in the 70s. And uh, But at the same time, that's what they told me. And it's like, okay, you know, uh, I remember going, well, I at least got to try. You know, I should go and check it out. My dad had sold him the business, so I had nowhere to go other than Japan. Right. And uh, so I kind of like... I have to admit, I was really burnt out of the business at that time. I was so sick of the business. I've been doing six years of five hundred miles a day traveling from my dad, and doing yeah. most of the driving and traveling. And I was worn out. I was ready to quit and get a real job, like a normal job. And uh, this WWWF thing presented itself, and was like, "All right, I, my 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 instincts tell me that it's not. They don't have any big plans for me, but I'll at least." Go there and see what happens. And uh, right away, I, uh, I think uh, a lot of my – I started to get a whole different mindset, like uh, just flying in and seeing how everybody did promos and watching Hulk Hogan and Orndorff and Junkyard Dog all do promos and Stud and Andre. There were so many legends. There. All the big names were WWF at the time. Right. You know, I knew then. I was like, they're not going to, they got no big plans for me. Who am I kidding? Mm -hmm. Like, I knew, I knew it. It was like, I was a little guy. I was such a, like, I didn't see any chance for myself there. But I remember going, well, I'll still try it out. And so I remember my first uh, week that I worked for Vince, I made, like, I only worked first match. A lot of times I was plus one other match on the card. I didn't even have any billing or anything. Right. And a lot of times I, I was in battle royals and stuff like that. I was, wasn't even really working. And uh, I got my check after about two weeks of work. It was over about $3,500, uh-huh. which back then was like um, about three or four times what I was making working for my dad, maybe more than that. Right. And it was, I can remember like getting that sort of what I would call a big check for the week thinking I, i'm gonna stay here as absolutely as long as I can
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm not going home'm I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to make it work i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm been last here and hang on and earn my you know earn my keep and climb the ladder and get to the top you know i did i did um one thing I did that I think would help me a lot in my career was that one of, in the first few months that I was there I remember I sat down with Vince Vince McMahon, and I, I actually said to him, I said, what do I got to do to get to the top? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, he that's call up to me or something like that. And we talked about it, and I said, I said, I, what I'd like to do if, I, if it's okay with you is I'd like to come in every couple of weeks or six weeks or two months or just get a report card from you on what I got to do to get improved, you know, what you, what you need from me to get me to where you want me to go. Right. And I remember we end up where he said, you come in and talk to me anytime you want. And we got where, over my career, I would knock on his door and I, I would ask him, like, what do I got to do? I remember one time he said, well, you guys got to work on your promos. And I said, well, it would help if we did some. <laughs> you know, And, and uh, about a week later, we had promos. And it was like, okay, that's a start. And it was always like, okay, I'd go in and talk to Vince. and You know, you'd get him thinking about stuff and, you know, he would start to come up with ideas for you. Right. I mean, I... I um I had that rapport with Vince, I think, right from the very beginning.
1: Which is so important, too, because Vince is such an intimidating figure, and sometimes it's hard to to talk to him because, uh, uh, you know, he's very imposing, very larger than life. And a lot of guys, I find, just just don't go talk to him as a result. And as you and I both know, that's not the way to deal with Vince. You have to go talk to him. You have to get into his face, and you have to kind of get into his mind of what he's thinking.
2: You know, I remember one time when Boris Sukoff came in the dressing room, and he goes... I'm not on the booking sheet. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you should go ask him what the hell, what's going on? He was too scared to go in. Right. So finally knocked on Vince's door and he went in and I guess you pointed point out to Vince that he wasn't on the booking sheet. And, uh, Vince looks at the booking sheet and, and then goes, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we well, yeah, forgot to tell you, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember he came out of Vince's office and he was blinking back tears and I go, what happened? He goes, He's the one that told me right then. He goes, he forgot to tell me that I was fired. And uh, I remember, well, at least you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no sense wandering around wondering whether you're fired. At least you get it off your chest, you
1: know. Yeah, its I, I had that one time, too, with a guy called Snitsky. He was, uh, Snitsky was his name, and he was, wasn't was doing anything and was kind of like, oh, I'm just spinning my wheels. And I was like, you got to go talk to Vince, man. Tell him your ideas. Tell him what you're thinking. He went in there, did the same thing, and three days later he got fired. So <laughs> Snitsky and Boris Zukov are not fans of Bret Hart and Chris Jericho, I'm sure.
2: <laughs> well, I know, you know, going back to Vince in those early days, you know, it was such a, I'm so glad I was part of those days.
3: Like you can only imagine how big Hulk Hogan and wrestling was in 1984.
2: Right. I mean, I was there watching that whole thing in the beginning and, um, It was just huge. It was just huge. All the wrestlers that were working for Vince back then, especially the big-name wrestlers like. He had the main event attractions, some of the biggest stars in wrestling at that time. Yeah. All under one roof. He had uh, some of the main stars from AWA. He had all the best guys from Crockett's territory. He had all the the big names from Louisiana. You know, it was including Andre and... It was just a very, uh, like, I remember watching the cards, and these could be super cards anywhere else. But uh in those days, they didn't draw very well in Calgary. Oddly enough, I remember. Mm. They come through Calgary those first few months of the October from my dad. Probably why they never paid him, is they were really took a bath here for a long time.
3: Yeah.
2: <clears throat> and then, of course, my brother Bruce got it and said that he was going to start up his own wrestling company when Vince went out of business because he was counting the days down to WWE was going to fold here. And so Bruce started making plans for his own sort of comeback of Stampede Wrestling. And uh, I think uh, that whole thing went, he, he was in business, I think, for one week or something like that. But uh, right. that was enough for Vince to go, well, I'm not paying him, yeah, I think. Anyway, that's my dad always thought is that. It was
1: because of what burst in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, like you said, at that point in time, the Stampede train had kind of ended. But, you know, you're talking about starting with the WWE when Hogan was at his peak and all that sort of thing. Your road schedule at that point in time was absolutely insane. Uh, what exactly was it? Was it like 20 days in a row, two days off or something like that? It was. I know it was just a horrible, crazy schedule.
2: It was about, for me, it was about 30 or 40 days or 50 days. Wow. And I'd get maybe four or five days off. And then it, there was other gaps. Like, I think my record back then was uh, 70 days. In a row? In a row. Oh, my gosh. And then I came home for, like, two days or three days and went back on the road for 68 days.
0: And I remember that was sort of
2: normal for me. Like, it was like I was just gone all the time in a different city. Night art used to go home. I would stay on the road and work single matches, and then Jim would come back from being home. And I would just keep on the road, and I'd just keep going, and keep going, and keep going. I remember I I got so burnt out. There was a few guys like that, Sheik with another one, and uh, uh, just guys that just never, I don't think they had a home life. I didn't have much of a home life. It was hard for me to get home sometimes, Jim. Right. Back to Calgary from uh, Newark, and then you'd have to turn around and fly right back. You know, sometimes it's easier just to stay in Newark for three days. Uh,
1: Uh, Was Hogan on that schedule, too?
2: um, Nah, Hogan Hogan right away was uh, maybe in the beginning, beginning, but he he, uh, never had the schedule that the rest of us had. Yeah. There was a time, once the wrestling really sort of exploded there after wrestling, I'd say after WrestleMania one, I'd say Hogan had a limited schedule where he. It was still a pretty hard schedule. He didn't work the little towns much anymore, but he was. Right. He was doing all the big cities, one city after another. And wherever, if Hogan was uh, in Detroit, you were on the same card. You gotta, you always got a really good paycheck. So whoever was on Hogan's card made a lot of money.
1: Because there was like A shows, B shows, and even some C shows at that point, correct?
2: It was A, B, and C every night, three shows a night, wow. all the time, every seven days a week. Like it was just never ended. I don't remember. I don't remember guys getting days off. You know, there was guys that would eventually go home based on their schedules, but uh, the road life was was uh, even Vince was. The schedule was uh, relentless. I don't, I don't think it ever. It actually lightened up after that. In those early '80s, like '84, I was there '84. I would say '84 to about '89. Yeah, the toughest years of that schedule. I, I think it was easily uh, 300 days a year for almost everybody. And, wow. Uh, and then after that, it wasn't much easier, but it, it was a little easier. Where we go, used to go 14 days on, three days off, and then we go three days on, three days off. So it was sort of one long trip and one short
1: trip. A short one, yeah. But, so uh,
2: it was a tough life.
1: No, absolutely. And it's funny because it, it doesn't surprise me how so many guys became, you know, addicted to pills and drugs or drinking a lot or doing a lot of steroids or whatever, because how could you not? You know, I would have been completely insane, too, with that schedule. I mean, that that is just punishing because not only are you having to... You know, traveling, as people know, is not easy. But every morning, rent a car, we have to pay for. Hotel, we have to find and pay for. Then you got to go through security. Then you got to find your bags. And you got to get another rent a car, go to the town. And then you got to wrestle for 20 minutes on top of that.
2: And go to the gym.
1: And go to the gym as well, exactly. And
2: the da- gym and the tanning beds. And then they had a dress code there for a while, which was wow. insane. They had a dress code where you had to have a suit and tie to get on the planes. And if they caught you, they'd find you. Oh my gosh! It was it was it was crazy. Uh, that, that that whole life. The only way you could you know when you talk about the drugs and stuff. Yeah. You know I don't know how guys did it that weren't on drugs. Oh yeah. I don't, it was um, you know, and and you know, not just the alcohol, but uh, drugs and alcohol. But you know, the other thing about all these wrestlers that most of them are making so much money uh, compared to what they ever made before. I mean, I wouldn't say they're making so much money that they. You know, but they—they're making a lot of money compared to what they ever made before. Yeah, it's like Iron Sheik—they're making uh, millions of dollars or half a million dollars a year with no education. Some of them can barely read and write, and they got to you know put this money away and invest it. And
3: mm-hmm.
2: No one ever schooled anyone what to do with the money they made, and uh, a lot of wrestlers—you just you know—you see a lot of tragedies out there today because no one ever. You know, sat down with these guys and helped right. them, uh, like, this is what you got to do. You got to put so much money away from the rainy days when you're finished and someday when you retire and RSPs and blah, 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 blah. You know, I feel so bad for so many guys that made so much money, but nobody ever schooled them.
1: Yeah. That's a good point. No one ever told them what to do. And also, you know, when you're young like that, you think it's going to last forever. And, There's you know, no
2: pensions. Uh, pain. benefits. I think a lot of the young wrestlers or the old wrestlers today that I work from my era and just a little bit within 10 years of my era either side
1: there's a lot of wrestlers
2: that have serious pain issues from uh, from from all the falls all the bumps, all the bad rings all the hard rings like Vince's rings were the best rings in the world and they were like cement Yeah. and uh, you know there's, there's a lot of people that are don't have money for, for hip surgeries and all of these replacement surgeries that uh, they were all finding that restless need as they get older. I've gone through two knee replacements now and two hernia operations since I retired. And I know that, uh, you know, thank God I live in a country where we have healthcare and, uh, you know, yeah. socialized medicine. And then I know you know, I can get those kind of surgeries and it doesn't cost me anything.
1: It, isn't it kind of okay. scary scary when you think about it because I mean you worked hard but is, but you think of the guys that are doing like all the flips and all the dives and you know I mean what's gonna happen to some of the performers today in 10 20 years how bad are they going to be off when you had to have knee replacements and hogan had to have knee replacements and hip replacements I mean you were a very smart worker imagine somebody that's been crazy with their bodies what they're going to be going through
2: well I see it more and more in myself. I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm paying for all the falls I took. Yeah. And I think I noticed it in Sean, Sean Michaels, last time I saw him where he's moving a lot stiffer and harder. and Right. And I see it in Mick Foley, you know, he's got all kinds of, uh, sciatic back pain and yeah. problems with this and that. Piper and Hogan's had two hips replaced. You know what? You could just look around and Duggan and Dyke just had, uh, some kind of surgery and all these lessons are having to go through this uh, replacement surgery or, you know, to fix all these all these injured limbs and body parts. And, you know, nobody's paying for it. Nobody, nobody thinks of all that stuff when they're... Right. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't know what... I don't know how much... Uh, you know, I, that would have been a great burden to me if, to have to have paid for all my medical expenses the last... Uh, 10 years if I lived in the States, it would be a very expensive uh, bill at the end of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. H- how do you feel now? Are you feeling okay?
2: I feel pretty good. I got a lot of, uh, like I said, I pay for a lot of little aches and pains. I have a lot of, um, problems. Well, one problems. I'm, I had two knee replacements, so my knees are a little stiffer, and, uh, and because of the problems I have with my knees and probably with my stroke on my left side, I, I tend to, uh, I uh, put a lot of weight bearing on my left foot, and I've got some arthritis or pain issues in my foot that I'm still kind of getting hmm. corrected. But um, on the overall, I'm pretty good. I I, um, you know, I got my mind anyway. Right? Yeah. But uh, for all the you know, all wrestling fans, they always say, doesn't that jump off a the of rope, doesn't that kill your knees? You know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it does. And I could say it was all, you know, with great... Sort of, um, it just finally dawned on me that yeah, I made a huge sacrifice—all those turnbuckles and
3: knees. Yeah. And, you know, you know
2: I, I, I live in a lot of pain, and I know. You know, one of the things I remember getting from Lanny Poffo when Randy died, much it, mm-hmm. was that he told me that Randy was in so much pain. He was racked with pain for a long time. His everything hurt. His knees hurt. shoulders hurt. His hands hurt. His neck hurt. And you know, I, I identify with that and I think the guys that were hard workers like, uh, myself and Dynamite Kid and Randy Savage and Kurt Henning, you know, we, we all would have paid or are, are paying for the, uh, the bumps that we took. Yeah. The rings were a lot harder in my era than they are today and, uh, you know, I think right after I left WWE back in 1997, they changed all the rings almost within a week or so of my leaving. And uh, the rings were much better from that point on. Vince had the best, really. His rings are much bouncier and uh, much softer than they were back in my era.
1: You know. Yeah, well, they definitely are taking those precautions to to do that. It's it's interesting. They're even having the guys train now with helmets when they're when they're learning how to work. Like when they down at that NXT um, at the uh, training center, they have. They have guys wearing kind of like little, I don't know what the kind of helmets exactly they are, but it's interesting how they're really trying to um, upgrade the whole system. But sometimes I wonder if that's even possible. Wrestling's wrestling; you're always going to have that that element of, of the wear and tear on your body for sure.
2: Well, you know that uh, one of the big issues that's coming out now is all the concussion damage from, they see it in hockey, football, and even baseball. Now they're talking about concussion. You know, that makes, makes me wonder is how much brain damage does do the, the wrestlers put themselves through. And, you know, I tend to, I do got to ponder it because, you know, and you can, you would be a good guy because you've met a lot of old timers and stuff through your, through your life as a wrestler. And we both know that we beat a lot of old timers in the dressing room. And most of them are, uh, you know, they're pretty clear headed and, uh you know, they can talk to you about stuff. You know, I I, I find that wrestlers are all pretty sound mentally, you know. Yeah. Because we don't really hit each other in the head, and we don't really take a lot of headshots compared to what we pretend in wrestling. But, uh, you know, in football, I see them run at each other full blast and crash head like those Elks or those Rams on the mountainside. Right. You know? Like, that's got to do brain damage. You watch UFC and you see these guys... You know, roundhouse kick somebody on the side of the head, you know that's brain damage, especially when he goes down and a referee doesn't do anything and uh, he steps in and throws about 10 good shots on the guy's face real fast. It's like, I can't, I can't believe the brain damage that happened in a lot of these sports. And uh, You know, pro wrestling, you know, for a long time I think people, talk, you know, who would want to get into pro wrestling, especially after movies like The Wrestler come out. Wrestling takes a bad knock for a lot of things, but you know, Today's wrestling with Vince, Vince and the WWE and the training schools and the way they're learning and the rings that they're working in, you know, I think that uh, the wrestling profession has a lot to offer. I, I would encourage just about anybody to get into it. It's a great, it could be a great life and uh, with a limited uh, time frame to, to make as much money as you can. But if you've got the talent, it's a, it could be a great life.
1: What? Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And I think you know uh, they've banned you know headshots with chairs, which is something that we all used to do. Like, you hit me in the head as hard as you can. But it's, it's interesting when you're talking about the, the the brain damage and and they're talking about how the the brain is solidifying. I mean, I have no doubt that was one of the issues with with, with Chris Benoit and, and leading to what he did. I, I think that he had the 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 extreme version of those like the they're talking about the the, the concussion syndrome, the, the hardening of the brain, all that sort of stuff that they're just finding out about now. I think that's what what happened with Chris.
2: Yeah, and you know, the, the sad thing is they can't do a all of those tests on your brain until after you're dead. You know? so right. You can't tell if you got that, uh, you know, where your brain... Like, yeah, I don't it's know, called
1: tau. The the harding is called if you have tau, T-A-O, in your brain, apparently, I think is what it's called. Yeah, I know
2: Chris, uh, they said his brain was like ser- like mush at the end. Yeah. So they, they did the, the, the slides or whatever of his brain tissue. I mean, it was just so, um, it was like a really severe Alzheimer's patient. Right. And, you know, you think about that, climbing up on the top rope and doing that headbutt he did, just a, aside from everything else he did.
3: Yeah.
2: He just do that headbutt every night, rain or shine, sometimes miss and move and hit the mat. And, you know, he took a lot of headshots over the years. That uh, you know, again, like I, I got kicked in the head by Goldberg. He kicked me as hard as he could much like somebody swinging a hockey stick and cracking you over the back of the neck. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he his kick that Bill Goldberg gave me ended my career and cost me millions of dollars. Right. But uh, other than that, I, you know, I never in my whole career ever took a, a real serious concussive head blow ever from any other match. Or any, I never took air shot. The only time I ever you know, took chair shots was maybe in the uh, Stampede territory, and even then I, I never let wrestlers hit me on the head mm-hmm. with a chair, generally. I'd let them hit me across the back and stuff like that, but I never took chair shots to the head. I never let anybody hit me over the head with anything that they couldn't um, pretend. Right. And I never really took a lot of head shots. And, you know, I over the years, I remember meeting uh, Freddie Blassie, or you'd meet New in the restroom, and they'd talk to you about what kind of car they drove back in the 40s, and they you know they were very clear-headed, and you could talk to them about stuff. And who was a good worker? And, you know, and then you meet someone like um, Joe Frazier. I remember meeting Joe Frazier, and I was like, "I felt so bad for him." I said, "This guy's got the lights on, but nobody's home. Someone took his brain out." Like he doesn't even he's just kind of smiling like uh, like he had no brain.
1: Yeah, yeah totally punch drunk, and I, you know Ali has that. Uh, when I met Leon Sphinx, it was like that. So yeah. I mean, there is obviously the difference between boxing and wrestling in that in that respect for sure.
2: And I think you're seeing a lot of the football players do the same thing. Yeah. And they they don't see a lot of the big heavy football players doing the past 50. And so there's there's a lot of concern that way. And, uh, you know, I wonder what what, um, pro wrestlers from our era and the era behind, you know, the last from the 70s and the 80s, whether they got any kind of um, legal action that they could take to get uh, benefits. Stuff like that. I don't
1: know. Well, it's like you said, the WWE is definitely uh, focused on that and, and definitely made some improvements as they needed to.
2: Yeah, well, that'll be a bigger issue in, in all sports pretty soon is uh, concussive uh, head injuries because there's nothing more valuable than your head. You only got one. You only got one brain. So you can go get another one or you can get a transplant. Or, <laughs> or at
1: least not yet, anyway. Right. <laughs> We're not done. We've got so much more to talk about with Bret Hart. He's going to come back next week. And this week, I'm still going to answer one of your questions. It's not too late to get one in. Just hit me up on the Twitter, at TalkIsJericho. But make sure to use the hashtag TIJQuestions. That way, I'll be able to find them, leaf through. And if I like your question, I'm going to answer it. Like I said, Bret Hart will be back next week. We're going to talk about his time in the WWE, uh, breaking apart as a single star, becoming the world champion what he thinks of Vince McMahon nowadays, what he thinks about Shawn Michaels nowadays, and what he thinks about WCW and Eric Bischoff. And trust me, he does not pull any punches. I'm going to answer one of your questions next. What do you want to know? Like I said, hit me up on Twitter, at TalkIsJericho. But before we do this week's question, let me just say... Thanks for clicking the Amazon banner every time you do your shopping. I know we just finished up with Christmas. Tons and tons of presents were bought via the Talk is Jericho portal. I want to thank you for that. Continue to help me support this show. Continue to help me to be able to do this show for you for free. To keep the lights on. To keep pen in my hands. To keep the ink in the pens that I'm using to write all of this interesting information. I just got some beats so that I can deliver a quality uh, show for you. That costs money. So just go to podcast1.com, click on Talk as Jericho, and then hit the Amazon banner. When you do that... Amazon kicks a little money back to the show so we can keep it going for you. That's right, for you every week. You still get the great Amazon prices and experience on whatever you buy. You don't have to pay anything extra. You're just helping out your favorite podcast, Talk is Jericho, while you do it. You're just helping out the pod of thunder and rock and roll. So when you do it. So, hey, here's an idea. Bookmark it. So it's easier to find. Go to podcastone.com, click on the Talk is Jericho show page, and add it to your favorites. Do it now. Do it now. Are you going to buy a Bret Hart uh, DVD? Go to amazon.com via Podcast One. Do it. All right. It's time for the Twitter question. At Mekleth. M-E-Q-L-E-T-H, Mecleth, Me- Meculeth, asks, how is book three coming along? The good news is it's coming along splendidly. I'm almost finished. Basically, we have um, the fifth draft going on right now. How it works is, is you do – first of all, I, I come up with all the ideas of what I'm going to write about. Then I kind of – Loosely put them into chronological order. Then I call my collaborator, Pete Fornatale, who I've worked the last two books with, and we go through everything. He interviews me. Okay, then you did this. What is this all about? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. And then he takes all of my answers and puts them into a loose uh, manuscript. And then he's done. Then I take that manuscript. Then I start writing. Every word you see written by me. Draft one takes... A long time. It took me about two months of working diligently every day to do draft one. Then draft two, I rewrite again. That takes about a month. Then I hand it over to Pete. He gives me his notes. Then I do draft four because draft three is his notes. Draft four, I redo it. Then I send it off to my editor. He gives me his notes. That's draft five. Draft five. Pretty much now i got one more draft to do. Copy editors look at it to see if there's any punctuation mistakes or if there's any factual errors. you got a a proofreader that looks at that. Then the legal looks over it to make sure that I didn't say anything that I could be sued for, believe it or not. Then that's about it. So now I just have to pick the photos that I'm going to use and write the captions for those and then come up with the chapter titles. So I'm almost finished book three. It's going to be released via Gotham Penguin Publishing, September of 2014. Hard to believe I'll have three books about my life before my 44th birthday. Crazy, right? But that's because I've got a lot of ridiculous stories and also because all of you like to read them, and I appreciate that. And all of you like to listen to me on Talk is Jericho. Spread the news. Spread the love. Keep us number one. And we'll see you next week with more Bret Hart. And believe me, he gets rocking in the next week's episode. So stay cool, stay hard, stay heavy. God bless you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. I am Chris Jericho. This is Talk
0: is Jericho. Thanks for listening to Talk is Jericho. Don't forget, every Wednesday there's a brand new episode of Talk is Jericho at PodcastOne.com.